um, I have to tell you, I picked up the book from your apartment at like 5.30 last night and I finished reading it at one. I couldn't stop reading it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you. I'm glad you yeah. liked it. Um, I mean, I love behind the scenes uh, accounts in, in general, but I thought yours um, flew beautifully and was uh, very well told. I also love Thelma and Louise, like love this movie. Well, you know, as a nonfiction book writer, uh, you're 100% ahead of the game if you have a great story to tell. And the making of Thelma and Louise is a great story. It's very suspenseful. So many things could have gone wrong uh, and it would never have happened. And uh, there were so many cliffhangers along the way. And the result was this iconic movie made by a bunch of people who really didn't know what they were doing. Thelma and Louise are going fishing. How come Daryl let you go? Because I didn't ask him. <laughs> He's going to kill you! I left him a note. <laughs> Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma! Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? his butt. <laughs> Thelma, have you lost your mind? Woo! I'm uh, Investigator Hal Slocum, Arkansas State Police. You get your butt back here, Thelma, now. As you know, we've tapped your phone. What? Maybe you got a few too many parking tickets? Uh, Thelma, what happened? getting in deeper every moment you're gone welcome to 30 years later i am your host ricky camilleri with my co-host here chris chafin uh we are joined hello that's by... me i'm chris chafin you know you didn't have to jump in chris people could have just, just so people can identify our, our voices differently i thought it would be helpful this time uh we're very lucky today to be joined by the author of uh the 2017 book off the cliff how the making of thelma and louise drove hollywood to the edge uh, Becky Aikman. Becky, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And uh, for allowing me to drop by your apartment and pick up a copy <laughs> of the book so that I could so that I could read it. I really appreciate that. Well, you need um, to be up to speed. That is true. That is true. Um, so today we are talking, uh, as we already said, about Thelma and Louise, the iconic uh, Thelma and Louise, one of the great American movies of the past 30 years, if not ever. Um, before we dive into that, uh, Becky, since you're our guest, one of the things that we like to do is just sort of bring up the other movies that came out the week of Thelma and Louise, which is something that your book talks about, um, because Thelma and Louise was really uh, up against some heavy hitters uh, uh, the weekend of May 24th. They were Ron Howard's backdraft, which uh, you, as you say, uh, Thelma and Louise lost some cast members to, or a potential cast member. Bruce Willis's Hudson Hawk, the famed legendary colossal uh, bomb, 
Only the Lonely, directed by Chris Columbus and starring John Candy, which was kind of just a movie that came out. It's not really, doesn't really play a big role in in the competition with Off the Cliff. And uh, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, a uh, Steve Miner movie for, for, for Walt Disney. Uh, before we dive into um, Thelma and Louise, Becky, talk about how Backdraft and Hudson Hawk fared against uh, Thelma and Louise the weekend it was released. Well, it's funny, uh, Backdraft was sort of this big nemesis all the way through the Thelma and Louise process because it was considered the big blockbuster movie and a lot of men who uh, were up for parts in Thelma and Louise wound up taking parts in Backdraft instead because it was the big money blockbuster and expected to be a success. And Thelma and Louise was considered to be this really weird little movie that no one thought would go anywhere. So it was funny that the two happened to open on the same weekend. It only happened because the studio making Thelma and Louise ran out of money it was supposed to be released in a less competitive time in March and they didn't have the money to launch the movie. So it wound up in this big heavy hitter Memorial Day weekend kind of onslaught of blockbusters and didn't fare all that well in the opening weekend, but surprisingly well. But then what happened after that was in the ensuing weeks, all of those movies fell by the wayside and underperformed expectations while Thelma and Louise just built and built and built based on the audience reaction. And now one of the things about Thelma and Louise, before we, I think, even get to talk about the specifics of the movie and parts of the movie that we love, is that it was a genuine uh, cultural phenomena um, yes. after yeah. its release, uh, the kind of which we don't really get anymore, where it feels like even a comparative cultural phenomena could be something like Get Out or even Promising Young Woman. They still feel kind of siloed into per very particular circles, whereas Thelma and, Lu Thelma and Louise was a, a household name after a certain point. Can you talk a little bit about the phenomenon that was Thelma and Louise in 1991? It was an earlier time in terms of media. Thelma yeah. and Louise kind of emerged as a huge surprise. It dropped like a bomb into a big cultural conversation and the shockwaves just spread out from it. Uh, the more people saw the movie and talked about it. One of the interesting things about the movie is one of the few that takes advantage of the fact that there's a lot of debate over the roles of men and women in our society. And most movies don't bother to even approach that as a subject. Whereas it is a ripe subject for both comedy and drama. Thelma and Louise was very unusual in taking it on in both ways. And audiences that went to see it got very revved up, pro and con, and commentators got very revved up, pro and con. It became a must see movie because it tapped into something that no other movie was doing, but that touched on just about everybody's life. I always complain there are so many movies about guys shooting each other and having car chases. None of us face that in our real life, ever. But what to do about a husband who's a jerk? What to do about sexual harassment? What to do about all these things that Thelma and Louise face in that movie is something that almost all of us come up against at some point. So people, felt it on a deep level, had a big emotional reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is like 
the treatment of women in the movies that we have watched, uh, you know, and we started middle of last year. So that's like mid 1990 up, up to this point and how like unquestioning the attitudes of, you know, sort of condescension and sexualization and, you know, just like kind of disregard in general are towards a lot of women in these films. So I think it really set us up very interestingly to see Thelma and Louise, a movie that is like completely turns all of that on its head. And it does, like you're saying, it, you, you begin to understand a little bit why it connected so strongly with the culture because it's like, it's kind of saying without even necessarily attempting to say like, all of these attitudes are completely fucked up. And like these, you know, these women deserve to be take it seriously, to have their own adventures, you know, to write their own stories. And like, that was really so rare in the climate at the time, especially in a big film like, like this. It's rare in the whole history of Hollywood, but especially in the time, the eighties were a time when it was all about the big action movies. There were very few movies that had women as characters that did anything at all, except for romantic comedies. Uh, Thelma and Louise just wasn't like anything else that was out there. And that's one reason I decided to write this book. I thought, what can we learn today from studying how this movie made it through the wormhole and right. got to the finish line and stands out still as so very, very unusual. What happened that made it happen in this case where it very rarely happens otherwise? Well, and I mean, not to just jump right into that story, because there is, I mean, there's so, it was on the cover of Time Magazine, you know, everybody's right. There's a very famous Liz Smith column about it, like, about where she hated the film. And and Janet Maslin wrote, I believe it's not the review, but like an opinion piece that where the title is like, Lay Off Thelma and Louise. And it's all about the the cultural conversation about this, about how how people hated this movie. And I mean, I guess a lot of it has to do with the idea that there were sort of two main lines of criticism from what I, I read, but I would love to hear from you also. Um, one of them is, of course, like, you know, women shouldn't behave like this, you know, and whether that's the stated or the unstated thesis of a lot of the criticism, that's a lot of it kind of boils down to that. And, and the other one, which is kind of from kind of a different point of view is like, well, this is just another violent film. Like just because it stars women doesn't make it any better. Like it still has guns and explosions. And like, you know, if like I, I read an interview with the screenwriter, uh, how do you, uh, Callie Khoury, is that how you say her last name? It is, yes. Callie Khoury, yeah, where she was saying people will, will come up to her and say like, oh, well, why couldn't Thelma and Louise find ways to outwit people instead of using guns? Like, oh, I just hate that it has all these guns in it. Like, can't they just, you know, use their wits? And she would just say like, I don't know, write that movie if you want, but a, a gun is a great thing to have but in a also, movie, you know? But also it's an, it's an, it's one of the things that makes Thelma and Louise so special is that, before it is anything else, it is first and foremost a big entertaining ho American Hollywood movie, right? Yeah. Like that is what it is first and foremost. And then everything comes after. So for everybody to sort of want it to be something more cerebral and something different is wanting, as Kelly Curry said, a completely different kind of movie. It is trying to live in the pantheon of the American West and Hollywood's depiction of that just involving female characters to sort of be like to sort of say oh the women should be doing this is once again demanding that a movie not allow women to have the same roles that men have had in movies for so long at least in my opinion exactly one of the reasons it had a huge impact is it's a very entertaining popcorn movie yes but the fact that the there's violence in it and women in it freaked people out despite the fact and i 
have it in the book. I tab tabulated the numbers of how many people Sylvester Stallone, Stallone killed, <laughs> and how many people Arnold Schwarzenegger were killed. It was like 60, 70, 80 people in the course of the movie, many of them innocent bystanders. In Thelma and Louise, Gina Davis likes to say, three people died. One of them was a rapist and two of them were Thelma and Louise. So the fact that that freaks people out is so hypocritical if they went to see an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Yeah, you know, you know, uh, you know that a boy is reading your book, me, when I got to the part where it said how many people were killed in Total Recall, like 74, and I like audibly said, sick. <laughs> like, I was like, it's a great, <laughs> Total Recall is a sick movie. Yeah, oh, he does amazing. kill a lot yeah. of people. <laughs> <laughs> no, no innocent bystanders got killed in Thelma and Louise. No, that is true. I mean, there's that scene in Total Recall where Arnold Schwarzenegger is literally machine gunning into just a crowd of people on an escalator, you know? And it's yeah, it's mostly collapse. Yeah, he literally picks up a guy, a, a, an innocent bystander, and uses him as a human shield. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, was it wrong that Louise shot the rapist? It is wrong. And one of the things that also makes this movie unusual is that she is racked with guilt about that. She understands mm -hmm. she did something wrong. She's not like, woohoo, killed the guy, great, which would be happening in a lot of other movies. There were moral repercussions and it was part of what led inevitably to that ending. That ending was justice in the mind of Callie Curry who wrote the film because, um, Louise, at least, was guilty um, of killing someone. The movie recognized that and didn't celebrate it. Yeah, I, the, in and this same interview, that, like, oh, it's sorry. very interesting. Callie Curry says, like, uh, talks about watching the film with an audience and seeing them cheer when the rapist gets shot. And she was upset by that. She was like, well, you know, I want the audience to understand why that she would do this. And I, I want them to, you know, identify with her in a certain way, but it's not supposed to make you cheer. It's not supposed to be cool. You're supposed to kind of understand like, oh, she's sealed their fates by doing this. And she absolutely should not have done it. But yeah, audiences can react to it very differently. But that was also something that Susan Sarandon fought, and this is de depicted in your book, that Susan Sarandon fought very hard for was to make sure that Louise was racked with guilt and it wasn't just a sort of, I, I hate to use him as a, as a, you know, as a comparison because I really like his movies, but often his violence is viewed as glib, but as like a Tarantino style execution where it's just f sets up a lot more fun and hijinks for the rest of the movie. Right, yeah, it was really important to Susan Sarandon to not do a shoot 'em up movie. And she at first was reluctant to take on the part because she was afraid of that aspect of it. And she spoke to Ridley Scott, the director, about how she wanted it to be clear that Louise was feeling guilt, that she did not do something that was right. And she wanted that to be a part of the film, which it was all along from Callie Curry. I think it's only the fact that women were running around carrying on like this that freaked everybody out so much. If a man had been in a movie where he shot someone who had just committed a terrible crime and then felt really guilty about it, I don't think anybody would say, whoa, excessive violence, how outrageous. It was the fact that women were doing it that um, set off the firestorm. It's so, um, 
I, I, you know, the name of the podcast is 30 years later. So I hesitate to always use the phrase. It's so interesting to look at this 30 years later, <laughs> but <laughs> I agree. I there should be like a whole podcast doing that kind of thing. For once you are truly right because 30 <laughs> years later, all of this stuff is still really pertinent. Yeah. Well, I think of a movie like Promising Young Woman, which came out last year, which also ignited a firestorm of think pieces and 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 op-eds, not nearly as many as Thelma and Louise, because it just wasn't as much of a ubiquitous phenomena that as Thelma and Louise was. But my problem with that movie was that it didn't go far enough. Yeah, that same, it was completely. That same. it was that it was afraid to allow its female character the kind of the the kind of freedom that Thelma and Louise had and also existed first and foremost as its own think piece versus a a a, a big entertaining movie whereas i think Thelma and Louise what it really has going for it consists i mean outside of a great script with a lot of subtext it it does care first and foremost about entertaining the audience and being a, a, a big Hollywood movie rather than being a think piece or, or like the, the, all that stuff came after it didn't start as trying to be that initially, but right. you know, a movie 30 years later, the, the big feminist movie that we get is very scared of allowing the kind of, of, of giving its character, the kind of freedom that Thelma and get, and it's actually kind of trapped and consistently victimizing her versus not, not that we should get into a large conversation about promising young woman right now, but you it's know, more, I'm up for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it seems, it seems more weighted and trapped in the victimization of its characters versus giving them the kind of freedom that Thelma and Louise find. Well, I think one of the differences is stylistic. Uh, yeah. In Thelma and Louise, uh, the one thing that makes it entertaining is that it celebrates this independence that they feel. And it's partly the wonderful visuals of the film that oh give you that sense of freedom and liberation that they feel as they take off across the landscape, which is beautifully depicted, of course. So I think part of it is just a question of tone that in mm -hmm. Thelma and Louise, you feel these ladies have entered into their own new thing and I'm all for it. Um, the promising young woman, I mean, she does some more badass stuff than they do, but um, it's more cheerful when Thelma and Louise do it, maybe. I also think, uh, I mean, you, you brought it up now, but uh, Ridley Scott's direction oh of God. the film I mean, there are so many shots in the movie where you immediately, maybe because they've been, you know, they become stills and magazines or in other places where you read about film. But I, I'm watching, when I watched this movie, I saw it at a drive-in a few weeks ago in Queens and I watched it last night in my apartment. And there are shots in the movie, whether I had seen them or not after the movie had come out, I immediately thought iconic. Wow, that's an, that's an iconic shot. The shot of the two of them looking at the gas tanker, they're about to explode from behind where they're both sitting on top of the seats in the car. Multiple shots of the two of them when they're driving, when they drive by the tanker for the first time and suddenly the movie does like rear projection um, and the car's kind of bopping side to side. Like a, suddenly it's a very surreal fake kind of driving shot that you haven't seen throughout the rest of the movie. He just has an incredible sense of how to make every shot in this movie and at the right time, um, iconic and mythic and beautiful. And I don't think you really get that with movies like this anymore because I don't think enough money is put into them to allow directors to make images 
images like this. I mean, even Ridley Scott pretty much sticks to violent war movies at this point. Well, there's so much I could say in response to what you just said. There are so many fascinating aspects to the fact that Ridley Scott directed this feminist epic. Uh, but he partly was the right man for the job because he worked in advertising and he knew how to make beautiful, spectacular images on a low budget because this budget was pretty low. Um, also, the studio and he were very afraid of the ending and people's reactions to the movie. And Ridley Scott felt very strongly that in order to sell that crazy ending, he had to not say, here are a couple women driving a car to kill themselves. It had to be, here are two women who are entering into the realm of myth. It had to look epic. Yes. You had to feel at the end, not like, whoa, that's depressing, they're dead. You had to feel like, wow, they just took off into the sky in some spectacular, beautiful way to make a big statement. So these visuals that Ridley Scott put on film for this were key to his understanding of how the movie could work, but also why we're still talking about it today. It is an iconic, epic movie, and a lot of it has to do with that imagery. Yeah, I mean, so you, you were talking about this before, Ricky, but like, and and maybe you as well, Becky. But the you know the film has this connection to you know road movies and cowboy movies. And, you know, so much of that in a very literal way is the photography of the desert, you know, it's shot in the desert in Utah and like the Monument Valley and stuff, the places, you know, where John Ford movies were shot, the places that we are very familiar with seeing. And it's interesting you mentioned, Becky, that Ridley's Scott's work in advertising because remembering at the time, like this is like what every Coke commercial looked like back in these days, you know, it was, they were all in the desert. There was all gleaming chrome everywhere. Everybody's sweaty. So it, it also had this way visually where it's not just making you think of cowboy movies and road movies, but it's also making you think of like, you know, current pop culture at the time. And it's just completely visually puts you in this mode. You're very familiar with in a certain way. Uh, which I thought was really interesting and partially probably why people reacted so viscerally to it because then it has characters acting in a way where that you're not used to characters acting, uh, which is really interesting. Um, his skill from commercials, it's not just that he had lower budgets for those, but he only had a couple days usually to get images. And that's one thing they had to do with Thelma and Louise. They had to do it fast to stay under budget because nobody was going to put a lot of money into a movie about two women. Uh, so a lot of his visual skill from commercials came into play. He, for example, chose the locations very carefully, but he also dressed up the locations. They traveled around with truckloads full of uh, fake tumbleweeds and rocks and things, so it would always look great. Um, he used a lot of backlighting that would create this sort of corona behind the heads of Thelma and Louise and make them just look spectacular. He, of course, used the uh, golden hour light in these red rock settings in the West that made everything look tremendous. He really knew how to make it look fantastic. He also um, used that visual skill to help you keep track of the plot. He had three visual um, schemes for the movie. There was the sort of moist green look of Arkansas where they start out, where he has a rain machine, it's always raining. Uh, he has that sort of golden wide open look when they're traveling through the plains. And then he has that otherworldly 
look of the Red Rock West for the final third of the movie when it's entering into a whole different mythic realm. And so when he would cross cut between these in time, you always knew where you were from that visual sense. This is the kind of stuff you don't pay attention to the first time you see the movie because you're very caught up in the plot, which is great. But when you watch it a second or third time and look for these things, it's fascinating. I'll say one more thing about it. He also gave a lot of texture and layers to every shot. So he didn't just have a desert. He had the rocks, he had the mesas and the buttes in that area of Utah where they shot. But he'd also do things like have irrigation sprinklers twirling around in the background or a crop dust right, yeah. by or a cowboy or a guy on a motorcycle. He always had stuff happening in the background to say, this oh, is yeah, the, the West. The scene where the two of them are driving through the bull, the cows uh, that yeah. are um, behind them. Like they're just having a conversation in the car while like behind the car is just like, you know, 40 cows running behind <laughs> the car. It's so, it's amazing. And it's interesting when you talk about budgets, it, it, the budget, I think you say in the book was like 17 million, right? right. Um, for 1990, 91, 17 million goes a very long way. Um, not as far as a 30 or $40 million movie, obviously at that time, but 17 million goes a, goes a, goes a pretty long way at that time and I I can't imagine this movie a movie with this script getting greenlit now for more than 5 million dollars at the at the most and like what would that movie even look like it wouldn't have the mythic proportions at all that 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 well, that Delman Louise has yeah the stuff you're talking about about the cows and you mentioned Becky the crop duster sequence i mean this is an amazing beautifully shot totally freeing sequence where a crop duster swoops down next to them and we're like in the plane and then it flies over the highway and it, and we see Thelma, you know, Thelma and Louise in the car with the plane flying right by them so it's like it what an expensive sequence it has nothing to do with the plot it looks amazing but it's exactly the kind of thing i mean we're always saying this but today like it just would not be in the movie because it's so logistically complicated it's so expensive and like it has nothing to do with the movie really it's just like fun and looks cool well actually they did it on the fly they came across this crop duster they paid him it's in the book i think what they paid him a pittance to say could we ride in your plane for one shot and then could we could you fly by and we show the other shot they just did it on the fly. That's so cool. We were very That's so cool. free through this whole movie. And part of it was Ridley Scott, it was an Englishman. And he loved this concept of showing his vision of the American West, which was an outsider's vision. Uh, and he often said that he, maybe he appreciated it more than people here did because he was an outsider. So he reveled in all of that visual imagery that he could use in this film. I mean, that's so interesting because that is one of the major cultural exports of America, right? Is this idea of the West. I mean, in English people are obsessed with it. Like German people are obsessed with it. There's apparently this huge cowboy theme park in Germany that's like one of the most popular places in the country. And my wife is from New Zealand actually. And I had never been to the West personally. And a, she, she, for years she would talk about it like, oh, we should take a road trip in the West. And I would be like, that's just so cheesy. Like, why would I do that? Like go to the West. It's just probably hot. Like who gives a shit? But we did finally do it and it, it was amazing. And it, but it was only because of her pushing to do it as an outsider who had grown up just seeing it in, in movies and thinking like, wow, what a crazy place that this exists. Like I would love to go there. Yeah, it blows your mind, that scenery where they did film the final scenes in Thelma and Louise, it blows your mind. And the people who worked on the film 
multiple people told me that they would just be driving along on their way to the set for that day and would burst into tears because that spectacular scenery tapped into some crazy emotion for all of them. Yeah. I mean, didn't you, didn't, don't you say in the book at, at first during pre-production, Ridley Scott was kind of let down by the look of, of like he expected a different kind of West when he was traveling out for locations and he was fairly let down by what the West ended up looking like? Yes, uh, they actually, um, three of them, the production designer and the location scout and Ridley Scott drove the actual route that Thelma and Louise would have driven and they were pretty disappointed Ridley Scott told me it's just a lot of parking lots and big box stores and gas stations. Um, So he decided, why am I spending the money to go to these places? I'll just do everything near LA because we'll find better stuff. That's more my image of the West anyway. And, And one way that that did translate into the film is that he did use much more spectacular scenery, but he also made a point and you can look for these of having a lot of things like satellite dishes in the backgrounds of every shot. You can find a lot of them in the movie because he wanted this feeling that the American West now, yes, it's still wide open, but you're never really alone. You can never fully escape. Somebody was always looming trying to find Thelma and Louise. You have to look for that really carefully, but it's in a lot of shots. They had a whole bunch of these satellite dishes that they carried around and put in places. So interesting. Amazing. <laughs> so interesting. Well, one of the things I did with the book, I interviewed, of course, all the key people, but I interviewed people like the prop people, the set people. It shows you in any film, I suppose, how much thought goes into every little thing and how it contributes to the final feeling of this film. When you look for all this stuff, it's really interesting. Becky, what were what were your first thoughts when you saw the film for the first time? Well, I thought it was crazily entertaining and the ending completely blew my mind. Leading up to the ending, I kept thinking, how can they get out of this? There's no way to get out of this. If they escape, it defeats the purpose. And when they actually did what they did, I saw it on opening day the audience just gasped it when such shock they'd never seen anything like it i mean the rest of the movie the whole way through i kept thinking i've never seen anything like this it's women doing this stuff i'm loving it and it grew out of stuff that women really feel it wasn't some fake action movie like let's solve some crime that you know isn't very realistic it was growing out of the stuff that women face every day and it got more and more and more extreme until it had that ending that shocked everybody. So I found it really shocking. I will say when my book came out, um, I went to a lot of screenings of the film and some of them were at colleges and these were people who had never seen the movie before and they had the exact same reaction. They were just stunned by it. And yeah, they all still it, it felt so current still. It still plays like gangbusters, I think, for any aged person who watches it. Though I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine uh, who who watched it with me. It was her first time seeing it. And she, um, like weeks later, was, said that she found it very depressing. Um, she was like, it's a very fatalistic world for these women. And her specific example was that <laughs> Gina Davis has her, Gina Lou, Thelma has her first orgasm and then, and is then robbed by the man 
<laughs> who who gives her that orgasm and I, and I and I was like yes it's a, it is a, you're not wrong it is actually a very fatalistic movie dressed up in a lot of entertaining uh humor and and action but at the end of the day it is a fairly pessimistic view on um what it's like to be an outsider or what it's like to be a woman in um in a man's in a in a man's world i personally don't have those feet like I don't respond to those dark feelings about it. I can recognize it intellectually, but I think for some reason, being a boy, I'm still more like, oh, look at this big fun movie that yes, yeah. has a pessimistic ending, but is still like quite humorous and 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 action packed. Well, because there's so much joy. The characters find so much joy in between yeah. each other and even in their relations with other people and in the world. And I mean, even doing the bad stuff that they do, they enjoy doing, right? Um, and so I guess that's been, but again, maybe I'm just coming at it as a boy. I don't know, uh, Becky, I kind of cut you off there, but, um, well, I, I, I can understand somebody finding it depressing, but I can also understand a lot of women do find it joyful also, because we all know this shit goes down. This is not a shock to us that the world is structured this way. At least mm -hmm. we can feel some camaraderie about it. We can say, oh, these women get it the way I do they can make me laugh about it. They can share these deep feelings with me. It's cathartic for sure. Uh, in a positive way at times and in a negative way at times. Uh, it's a complex movie. Yeah. Right. I mean, I guess is the idea that like somehow they don't solve society being like this. They're just existing in it. Like, I mean, is that kind of, you know, when, when you say it's like fatalistic and it has essentially a pessimistic view, it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess they're just, they don't, they're not trying to fix the world. They're just trying to, you know, be the best selves they can be in, in the world. Yeah, that's well put. I mean, they're, they're dealing with it. And at least through their friendship, they have company in that process. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to, and um, I hate to keep bringing this other movie up, it goes back to the ending of something like Promising Young Woman, which attempts to give after an extremely pessimistic near ending it gives a very positive view somehow of the <laughs> institution of policing of by having them swarm in and actually arrest all of the yeah. abusers like the police it swarm to, to a wedding because of an anonymous tip from someone like you know yeah it attempts to, it attempts to make up for all of its sort of pessimistic realism with a with a final moment of a uh, you know, it's not necessarily a happy ending, but with a retribution or a, a, a vengeful or ret retrib retributive? Retributive? Yeah. Is, is, is retributive ending, right? Yes, I don't yes, know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which which ends up, in my opinion, feeling false compared to the, the final moments of something like Thelma and Louise um, that is able to, you know, send these women off into like mythic flight as we've, as we've talked about. Well, so I, one thing I wanted to talk about, and unless you wanted to say something about that, Becky, I didn't, I mean. No, that's, that's, I thought of something halfway through and then I blanked, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Weird, we were that talking... usually happens when I talk to people. <laughs> yeah, they just kind of, they think of something to say, yeah. then they kind of zone out for a few minutes while Ricky yeah, keeps going and then. <laughs> you made really interesting points and it made me think of a lot of stuff. And then at the end, I thought, maybe I have nothing to add to that. That was <laughs> Welcome but, to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is just how it goes, basically. This is how it goes. 
Um, I was going to say, well, one of the things you were, one of you guys was talking about was it's so interesting to look at how did this movie end up getting made in this form mm -hmm. at, at this time. And I would like to talk about that a little bit. I mean, starting with the idea that this, I know I keep bringing up this one interview that I read, but like this was the writer's first screenplay. Like she was working as a producer on music videos and had never even written a screenplay before. Right. And somehow this process, somehow this movie survived like remarkably intact from her basically suffering and, you know, getting somebody catcalling her, sexually harassing her on the street and being going home and thinking like, oh, you know, what, what would I really have liked to have done to that guy? And then we end up with Thelma and Louise, which is not, it's pretty close to the thing that she wrote originally, right? I mean, so can you tell us about a little bit of the, the, the development process? Like, yeah, I mean, it was a miracle that this movie got made. In fact, the agent for Cali Curry told me uh, what happened to this, what happens to most movies is like feels like once in a lifetime but what happened in this movie was one in ten lifetimes it just never ever would have normally happened this was a screenplay by a complete unknown she readily admits she didn't know what she was doing uh, she said she wasn't writing the kind of movie that got made she was writing the kind of movie she wanted to see and normally something like this would not see the light of day and somehow it kept going through this process and making it at each step of the way. And part of it was the power of that screenplay, which was brilliant and is pretty much exactly what the final film is. Uh, she's very sensitive about the few things that got changed, but it's like very little compared to most movies. But I, I think, have to say, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I think one reason this movie did make it is that many of the key people didn't know what they were doing and forged ahead anyway. <laughs> Um, uh, like, 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 what kind of stuff do you mean? Like, do you? Well, for example, Callie Curry, it, the screenplay was so good that people did read it and look at it. Um, and then they would meet with her and say, oh, this is great. Now, here are our notes. Uh, we don't really think that women should behave in this violent way. We think a man should come in and rescue them. Um, we think that they're not likable enough. You know, they should be more pleasant. They should smile more. All these things. And many screenwriters would say, holy shit, I'm about to get a movie made. Sure, sure, do what you want. But she refused. Yes, I, I, I would say that for sure. Speaking <laughs> of myself, yeah. I would do that 100%. Yeah. You know, everybody says, well, you're next one. You can do what you want. Uh, but she refused to sell it to people and said, no, it has to be made the way it's made. Um, when her agent took it out to studios, they attached um, Jody Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer, who were the two biggest female stars at that time. And they sent it out with this great screenplay to all the studios. And one by one, they all passed saying, oh, two female leads, can't do a movie with this. The women shoot somebody, can't do a movie with this. That ending, can't do a movie with this. In the end, there was only one studio willing to take it on. And that's partly because there was a woman who worked there, uh, Rebecca Pollock, who wasn't part of the usual Hollywood, what she called the chop chop people. Uh, she liked to read things and judged the quality based on what she read. So she read that screenplay and thought it should be the way it was. And the head of her studio, which was, you know, really struggling, was Alan Ladd Jr., who was one of the only Hollywood executives who still really believed in the women's picture. He was very old school Hollywood. Women's pictures had always done well. And he was one of the only people who backed film starring women through the 70s and the 80s. So that was the only studio willing to take it on and go ahead with it. And then Ridley Scott, 
he loved the screenplay, but he knew he didn't get these women and he knew he was the wrong director for it. Uh, but he kept taking it to other directors and not being happy with their reactions. So finally, Michelle Pfeiffer said to him, Ridley, you've got to do this yourself. But to his credit, he knew what he didn't know. He knew that he didn't understand these women. He knew he didn't understand feminism. So he sat down with Pally Curry and had her go through the screenplay with him very minutely explaining everything till he felt that he got it and could portray not his own vision, but her vision of this story. So he was really willing to take the back seat here. And then one last thing I think that was key was that um, the two stars were both really smart, outspoken women and they kept it real the whole way through in the shooting. They uh, nixed requests for gratuitous sex scenes. Uh, they, they stood up for the integrity of those characters the whole way through. So um, those are some of the factors that led to the fact that in the end, the movie came out the way it started. Yeah, I want to talk about one of the ways in which, uh, I mean, I guess we'll save it till favorite parts, because one of my favorite parts of the movie is a scene where Susan Sarandon stood up for herself. And it's actually one of the scenes that the writer, first time writer who won an Oscar for the movie does not like, I think, and is, and is upset by, but it's it's my favorite scene in the movie. But we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, okay. One of the sort of little asides in this, in uh, Ridley's search, search for a director is he brings it to his brother, Tony, who had just been doing, who had just had success with Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2. He'd worked with Susan Sarandon on The Hunger, his first movie, and was pretty soon to be doing his own kind of violent road picture, which would be True Romance, of a Tarantino written, very different type of movie. Uh, and Tony Scott <laughs> said, I can't do this. I have a problem with women. And on top of that, Callie already had a problem with Tony because of his problem with women, right? Uh, I think you're referring to one of her most hated all-time movie scenes was in Beverly Hills Cop 2, um, where I forget now who shoots the female bad guy, Bridget Nielsen, right? Um, mm -hmm. And and me, you read the book last night. You probably remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The the one of the one of the guys working with uh, Eddie Murphy shoots Brigitte Nielsen, who's one of the villains in the movie. And as she's like collapsing onto the ground, dying, he turns to Eddie Murphy and goes, women. And Eddie Murphy does his trademark. Eh, 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 eh. And Callie Curry, it's one of the things that upset her so much and kind of inspired her to, to, to write the script. Or I mean, was probably one of the inspirations in the back of her mind or one of the things that she held on to. Right. She would have been truly horrified if Tony Scott had been the director, but most of the choices she would have been horrified for because why? Because this is who the directors were. Ridley didn't approach yeah. any women. He only talked to men. And they were all making these action movies where women were just, you know, in the background. Uh, what Gina Davis calls the good luck honey parts. So yeah. uh, it was hard to find somebody who would have pleased her who was on the short list for directors. There's one director who was on the who was on the list who seems to have made it pretty far until they decided he would maybe go too dark, uh, which is Tim Hunter, who did River's Edge, which is maybe one of my favorite movies. Um, and I just would love to see his version of the, this movie 
just to see how dark it would go. I think there's also a sense of humor to River's Edge that most people don't credit it for, that he could have probably tapped into with Thelma and Louise. I don't think it would have been as mythic and, and big as, as Ridley was able to, to make it, but I would have loved to have seen Tim Hunter's version, if not just for him being able to have a bigger career after having yeah. made Thelma and Louise. I think uh, Ridley Scott rejected a lot of the directors because he was afraid they couldn't do the humor. And he felt yeah. that the humor was essential to not turn off the audience. He was always worried about the audience being turned off. Yeah, I'm I'm personally a big proponent of, uh, I, I think most movies, 95% of movies need humor in them. It's how you draw an audience in and then how you pull the rug out from under them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and um, it's full of really great humor. So why mess it up? Go with it. Yeah. And that is one of the things that makes the movie a little bit complicated, right? Is that the women are, they're suffering, bad things happen to them and they are doing bad things to other people, but they are constantly like laughing and making jokes and just living their lives in a way that doesn't seem like it's revolving around, you know, as much as uh, Susan Sarandon is, is, you know, feeling remorse about shooting this, this rapist, it's like, they're also just having a good time, you know, and it does make inner, it makes watching the movie easy, but for a certain kind of person, it makes thinking about the movie complicated because they, they are, they're not victims and they're not hardened criminals. They seem to just be like two people who are, you know, enjoy each other's company, you know, and they're off yeah. on this adventure, you know? Well, well even in the book, said, you, you, oh, sorry, go ahead, Rebecca. Callie Curry says one of the major themes of, story for her is that these are two women who get to become their true selves by being freed from their normal constraints. And that sums up why people find it a liberating experience, even though it's also depressing. <laughs> well, even uh, one of the actors in the movie, you write, um, didn't really get it and thought that they were criminals and shouldn't be celebrated as much. Stephen Tobolowski, otherwise known as Watch Out for That Step, It's a Doozy from Groundhog Day, um, thought the movie, while he liked it and was proud of it, didn't really understand people viewing Thelma and Louise as heroes or even uh, really iconic. He, he, he thought that they were violent. He thought they were villains in a way. Right, he did. And, you know, he's entitled to that point of view. One of the more interesting. <laughs> I mean, he's made his career of being a square, basically. Like, he doesn't just yeah. play a square in movies and TV. He is a square, you know? Like, hey, it, hey, hey Stephen, that's like your opinion, man. <laughs> it, it fit his part. He was the hard ass guy in the movie who did think they were villains. So he. He was able to well, bring that to the screen, right? But exactly. One of the interesting dynamics was the men and the women on the film and their mm -hmm. various views of what was right and what was wrong. Um, and it gave a lot of texture to the movie, I think. Well, yeah, even the, the stories about Harvey Keitel wanting to improvise all the time with all the other <laughs> men in the movie are, are so funny to me. I mean, I think, I think Keitel is one of, you know, the great screen actors, but hearing the stories of him, like demanding improvisational scenes with other actors who are like, can we just do the scene as is? man <laughs> right. and then it's such a relief when i get to the, the editing and the uh, the editor yeah. you know, clearly did a great job said you know i'm sorry i just got rid of all that harvey Keitel improvising it just detracted from the story 
It wasn't a story right. about the detective. And that was an issue a lot. Like a lot of the guys who were considering being cast in that part, they wanted the story to be about that detective, the guy. Mm -hmm. and, right, it's like Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive, right? Right, right. And um, a, a lot of them demanded expanding the role so that he had more of a role. And a lot of directors would have gone along with that because everybody thought, well, there should be a male lead in the movie. But um, they were pretty restrained about raining Harvey in. I mean, they let him do his improvising on the set and then they didn't use it in the film. And that's because it's not about him. I mean, speaking of the men in the movie and speaking of kind of the like what ifs about the movie, uh, the director of the movie, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about uh, and I want to make sure we get to is like Brad Pitt in this film. This is the movie that made Brad Pitt a star. Like he's so amazing in this movie and I personally found his performance to be like so full of life and so like very smart and and well done and I mean when he's introduced he's like drinking squatting over drinking out of a hose and Gina Davis like actually accidentally kicks him and then all through the scene he's like wiping his mouth with his elbow in this way that's very like unattractive but it's just so it's such a smart performance choice I thought it makes him seem so like uh, genuinely this kind of like yokel he's he's supposed to be and obviously he's so beautiful <laughs> but but this was like a part where lots of different people were considered and lots of people you know were rejected for various reasons. So, I mean, can you can you talk a little bit about this, about Brad Pitt ending up in, in this film? Well, first of all, I totally respect you guys for not bringing up Brad Pitt until this late in <laughs> my class because Brad Pitt always comes up and that's legit because he's fabulous in the movie and uh, it was his first major role, as you know, I'm sure. Um, Wait, can I can I can I lose that respect from you immediately after <laughs> I have gained it by saying one of my favorite parts in the book is when Brad Pitt admits to getting a boner while filming the love scene? <laughs> <laughs> well, I put that in there for you guys. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you so thank much. You. <laughs> you know, know, know your audience. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, this is one of the many things that wouldn't normally have happened and ultimately it happened. And we would never have heard of Brad Pitt possibly because um, he was not chosen for the part. Billy Baldwin was chosen for the part. And at the very last minute, someone had forgotten to get him to sign his contract. And he was offered a part in that dreaded nemesis backdraft and skedaddled to be in backdraft. So suddenly right before the production, they didn't have someone for that role. Now they had already screen tested just about every hot young guy in Hollywood at the time, many of them later, huge, huge stars, but all unknown at the time, because they, I forget, it's in the book how much they had to pay him, but it was peanuts. So they couldn't really get somebody big. Uh, so I actually got to see the audition tapes for these guys. Oh, wow. And, you know, like George Clooney, when he didn't look like George Clooney and other people. Um, I would be a terrible casting director because I picked all the wrong ones as the best. <laughs> but they all did this sort of James Dean kind of thing. Um, so Brad Pitt, how he even got on the list is shocking to anyone because as the casting director said to me, uh, he was so good looking. If he was any good, he would have been a star by then. And he wasn't, he'd just <laughs> been little tiny things. But somehow he made it to the finals after Billy Baldwin dropped out and they asked Gina Davis to read with three finalists. Uh, two of them were brunettes and uh, one of them was Brad Pitt. Uh, Ridley Scott was there and the casting director. And um, 
you know, it went fine, you know, but uh, when Brad Pitt came in to do his, uh, he said his lines and Gina Davis completely blanked and forgot her lines and started giggling. So she said, oh, I'm so, so sorry. I'm ruining your audition. I'm sorry. Um, let's do it again. They did it again. It kept happening over and over again. The whole thing was this herky jerky mess where she kept blowing it. Um, and then he left. So Ridley Scott and the casting director were talking about the two brunettes, the pros and cons of them. And Gina Davis was there. And by then she knew Susan Sarandon pretty well and admired her outspokenness. Gina thought to herself, what would Susan Sarandon do in this situation? She would speak up. So Gina said, hello, the blonde one. Uh, Ridley and the casting director were shocked and said, why? Uh, but they saw immediately that she had this chemistry with him. So this is another example of people out there of why women should have major roles in <laughs> deciding stuff about movies because Gina Davis understood that the women in the audience would be totally into Brad Pitt because she saw that in him. Right. She kept forgetting his lines to be clear because she thought he was so hot. She couldn't concentrate. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. And then when he's in the film, I mean, he's so great. He did a different interpretation from all these other auditions I saw where he was this sort of aw shucks, polite guy. And he's, he's really a psychopath and the others played him scarier but he knew that a true psychopath can play the polite nice guy and did that really well but i just want to say one other thing about it their sex scene which is epic and they had to cut it dr drastically because it took over the whole movie it was so hot and steamy uh they had to pare it down quite a bit and yet it's still very hot and steamy um it is a standout sex scene because Ridley Scott shot it from a woman's point of view. The camera angles are all the way Gina Davis was looking at Brad Pitt. Uh, Ridley Scott sprayed Brad Pitt's abdomen with Evian water so it would be nice and shiny and pick up the lights just That's so. so funny. That's and, great. And the, the shots of Thelma, she's just agog with lust. And then you see from her perspective what she's looking at. It taught the audience to look at Brad Pitt as a sex symbol, which made him a star. But it also was a standout sex scene because the sex scenes always treated the woman as the object. In this sex scene, the man was the object. It, it's another thing you don't think about that much when you see the movie, but it's one other reason why. When you see that movie, you think, this is not like anything else I've seen, especially back then, because you don't get to look at a man this way. Yeah. And I mean, you're right. He is so purely being objectified in these scenes. I mean, it's like insane the level to which, yeah, like you're saying, like Ridley Scott spraying down his abs with Evian, like everything is framed and lit so that his abs look like unhuman, you know, like he just looks I mean, like to the to the point where Gina Davis had kind of complained that she wasn't being paid attention to enough while they were shooting, yes, right? Right. <laughs> She's like, Ridley Scott's not sh fucking shooting my abdomen with Evian water, you know, like. <laughs> Exactly. She said, I'm the girl here, Ridley. What about me? But he understood what that scene was all about. And uh, the audience picked up on it pretty well, too. Yeah, it's hard to I miss, think the I cast, think. 
I think the casting of of Brad Pitt um, is also another, which is touched on a, a few times in the book, a testament to which Ridley Scott was willing to cede ideas to other people in, in in the movie. You know, I think he's known as like a somewhat cantankerous, controlling director because he's very into storyboarding and the movies are very specifically shot. But the more you read, I mean, specific about about this movie and and, and in your book he is very willing to sort of hear what the actors have to say, hear what everybody has to say about and, and sort of hunt for, for the best idea. And as soon as she said it, it was like, Oh, that's the best idea. Let's, let's go in that direction. Yeah. He was very unlike his reputation on this movie. People who worked with him on it said he, he was freed up by the fact that for him, it was a really low budget. Um, it was a lark. And he felt very free and loose and improvisational throughout, very much not the way he usually is. He was known for working with these big built sets that were very heavily designed. Um, he concentrated more on the people in this. Uh, he gave them that iconic background, but uh, he focused on that story and didn't let it get overtaken by Blitz. Which he then ended up, I mean, immediately after went and made 1492 Conquest of Paradise. Like he only had one lark in him. And then afterwards, it was immediately <laughs> epics. It's true. It really stands out in his uh, oeuvre that uh, it's not like his other movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is top three of his movies. It would be this alien Blade Runner and... Um, I don't know. I'm not a big gladiator fan. So, I mean, it would really be those three for, for me when it comes to Ridley Scott's work. But back to Brad Pitt, because you know you want to get <laughs> Please. Um, Please, yeah. You really wonder, I mean, he'd been knocking around Hollywood. I think he was 27 and hadn't got arrested. Um, you wonder if his first big role had been something different, if the story would have been different. I mean, this movie made him a star because it was a great part written wonderfully and he was filmed in that loving lustful way it, he just pops in this movie in a way that you wonder if he would have if he'd been cast in say backdrop some you know firefighter number three yeah right just I like mean, another hunky story. guy with a bunch of other hunky guys like who cares you know that's that's the story of uh, of every actor and actress in 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 movies is that you know there's a good portion of it that is luck so as soon as you meet an actor or an actress who claims to have all the talent in the world and to be the most talented because they're successful you you, you kind of have to view it suspiciously because it's like yes you are talented but there's also like stars had to align for you to get the break that you got and it's not you know i bet you even Brad Pitt would say like i got very lucky and then he was able to use that luck to his advantage in the following years because he is smart and he is talented. But, you know, there are lots of smart and talented people running around the entertainment industry who don't get, just don't end up getting parts like that. Well, the guy parts in Thelma and Louise are interesting to think about. There are a lot of them. There are a lot more guy parts than girl parts. Um, <laughs> a lot of guys wanted those parts because they were sick of being in movies where they just looked threatening and shot a gun and drove a car. These parts were fun and interesting and layered and they got to show some stuff that they didn't get to show in other movies. So there was actually a lot of competition for these roles. Um, Michael Madsen, for example, uh, he was brought in to read for The Rapist because that's what he always was. He right. was yeah. guy. And he said to me, the word was, 
give Madsen a gun and a cigarette and let him do his thing. Uh, he lobbied for the romantic part. He called it a romantic part. It, uh, uh, Louise's boyfriend is not my idea of a romantic guy, but they had a romance of a sort. Uh, but it gave him a chance to stretch and show that he could play a sensitive guy. So he loved that opportunity. And Chris McDonald as Thelma's husband. Oh, yeah. I, just think, oh, I can't God. believe we haven't talked about that yet. I mean, his it was his big break, too. Yeah. So funny. He is so hysterical. And uh, Ridley Scott kept cracking up and cracking up. He, he just could barely sit through those scenes. They were so funny. He did so much comic stuff, which was key because Thelma's husband is a real jerk. And but Callie Curry had written him funny. So uh, when it was played that way, it's such comic relief in the movie and women can all relate like, ugh, I dated that guy once or that was my first husband. But yeah. it's so funny that it's entertaining too. There's uh, the great this scene where they call back, the Thelma and Louise, uh, Gina Davis calls back to the house and the police are already there but, and Thelma and Louise suspect the police are involved but they're not like 100% sure and they say like, you know, uh, Susan Sarandon says, well, if it seems like he knows hang up even if you're not sure and so she calls and uh her husband picks up the phone and he goes hey <laughs> she just like immediately hangs up <laughs> uh, that's, that's actually how chris mcdonald got the part he played that scene and just saying hello on the phone had ridley scott rolling on the floor with laughter <laughs> gave him that role because anyone would know right away that is not the way my husband talks to me on the phone <laughs> I love that moment where Stephen Tobolowski tells him to be nice to her. It's like the scene previous to the one where he does that on the phone, where <laughs> Stephen Tobolowski tells him to be nice to her when she calls. You know, he's like, be sweet. Women love that shit. And Christopher McDonald makes this face like, like this guy's crazy. He thinks women <laughs> yes. like being talked to in a nice way. And he like looks at he's Harvey like, Keitel like, isn't this guy crazy? Be nice to my <laughs> wife. To my what? wife? I'm supposed to be nice? What? But it actually turns out. But it actually turns out that he's right because he tries to be nice, and his wife knows he's full of shit. <laughs> well, I mean, what other part was like that? Um, and yeah, the trucker the movie, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> critics of the movie said, "Oh, the men are all stereotypes," but oh. you know, the men are all interesting. Ridley Scott says, "Add them all up together, and they form one fully hu human man." But in other movies, the men were all stereotypes, but it was just a, the gun and the cigarette thing. In this movie, they got to do crazy stuff that they never got to do in other movies. So they all had a blast. Well, there's another small part in the movie that I, I love. It's a scene that uh, I, I love. The first, the first scene we get with Harvey Keitel where he's talking to the waitress from the saloon and they have a flirty, fun, like respectful relationship with each other. She's much younger than him, but she knows him because I'm sure he goes to the saloon now and again or has investigated stuff. And it's not the kind of scene you would normally get in a, in, in a detective movie of any kind, because they would mostly just be a person that's not a character at all, but they right. just through their performance established that they have a flirty, respectful relationship with each other and what kind of person Harvey Keitel is with, with women. I love that scene. Yeah. That was Lucinda Jenny playing the waitress and she grounded that small part in a lot of reality. I mean, she was a waitress and the kind who knows how to be friendly and flirty with the customers because that's part of her job. Um, 
a lot of these little parts are, are fun that way. It's like the stuff in the background, the irrigation things, the, the little parts, everything is entertaining. Nothing is a throwaway. Yeah. Um, I think we should get to, we have yeah. three questions that we ask at the end of the podcast. Um, my mistake, I did not send these to you before. <laughs> oh no, will, Ricky. We, if, if you feel like you're on the spot, we will answer and, and come back oh, yeah, to you. Exactly. And it's okay it's if you don't have an answer. But the first if question is- all is, about Brad Pitt, I can answer all yes. You have to pick well, your it, favorite ab of his, like out of the 12 <laughs> that are visible. Yeah. Um, similar, I mean, it could be about Brad Pitt. I, what's your favorite part of the movie? You mean like favorite scene of the movie or? Yeah, your favorite scene, your favorite moment, favorite, yeah, favorite scene, favorite moment, favorite part. How can I pick that? <laughs> well, I can go if you want to think about it for a minute. My answer is kind of a cop-out, so this will set the uh, tone. Like, feel free to have a cop-out answer. <laughs> but like, I just really love, I mean, and I've been talking about this the whole show, but like the way Gina Davis and uh, Susan Sarandon interact with each other in the movie, like the way their relationship is kind of, uh, you know, they like each other, they get annoyed at each other, they're laughing, they're yelling at each other, they're one of them's doing something the other one can't believe. And it's just so realistic and so fun to be in, in that world and to see these two characters and these two actors get, get to share time together is great. And it's so rare in a film and I, I really love it. I mean, there's a great scene where, um, Oh shit! I forgot the scene I was gonna say. God damn it! I mean, even the moment. Oh no! I I I I I remember. I remember. I'm gonna do it. There's a great scene where um, it's kind of right after the murder happens, and you know, Gina Davis has obviously just like almost been raped, and then she's witnessed her best friend kill somebody, and she tearfully says, "Like, well, this is a great vacation. I'm having a great time," (laughs) you know. And it's like it's one of the things. There's an interview with the two of them from a few years ago, and maybe they brought it up to you as well, where it was like. Well, can can the can we do this in the movie? Like, will the audiences be there with us making this kind of a joke at this point in the film? But there's just something about the way she delivers it, where it's like, even when I watched it, I was like, I didn't even necessarily think it was a joke. I was like, oh, that's like mean, you know? It's not really. It's not Susan Sarandon's fault. Like, it's the kind of thing friends say to each other, there, you know. And it just felt so grounded to me. Um, and the whole movie's like that, you know. I also love the moment between, it's such a small moment, but establishes their relationship, which is uh, when she first gets in the car, Gina Davis puts a cigarette in her mouth like Susan Sarandon does. And she's pretending to smoke. And Susan Sarandon is like, Thelma, what are you doing? And she she goes, look at me. I'm being Louise. I'm Louise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm smoking. I'm Louise. Yeah. Um, my favorite part of the movie, which I was holding on to because we were talking about earlier about certain scenes that Callie Curry, um, didn't like because it deviated from her script, which is the scene between Susan Sarandon and Michael Madsen. Um, I love that scene in the hotel room between the two of them where he is playing a certain type of macho tenderness and fragility where it's like he is he doesn't have the language to express his emotions so he is going to fly off the hook it's something she's used to but she knows this man she knows what's good about him it's why she can rely on him and she has to not be reactive to his reactionary impulses and there is something so layered and deep about their performances in that 
scene it's the one moment i mean i've always been like a person who loves act watching actors and loves actorly movies and there's a very actorly scene within the movie um and the two of them apparently according to your book becky basically wrote that scene themselves after susan sarandon put up a fight about the scene that kelly curry had written which had um uh had louise basically get engaged to 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 jimmy have a fake wedding like a beautiful fake wedding at the hotel and then have set, have a love scene with him susan sarandon put up a big fight against that scene and then they came up with this yeah right i mean that 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 initial scene just felt too romantic and wrong and uh, i agree that the one they improvised works really well and i would say that the one they improvised is more romantic like it's 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 melancholic, but it's beautiful and heartbreaking. And there's so, so much adult. love. It's it's so grown up, yes. you know. And there's it's so surreal. much more love underneath the surface than to have put all of that romance on on in a in a big surface wedding. You get to like really experience the pain and the love that goes into being with someone for an extended period of time and into really knowing someone deeply, which is what you feel while you watch that. They know each other. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It just feels like anybody who's been through a breakup knows that it has this tender melancholy when it's when it's broken up right. That's how it is. And that's how that scene played. And allowing Madsen to present as possibly violent in the midst of this movie that has been almost only neglectful or violent men i mean emotionally violent or literally physically violent towards women to have him start that way and then to pull it back to reveal that he's 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 different than that um it, it's just a surprising power shift and, and and dynamic and that's one of the interesting things too so much of the knock on this movie is like oh all, like we've been saying all the stereotypes they're all awful characters and it's like yeah it's because it does trip that thing in you where you're like yes. oh she's a superhero and now he's the villain and like this kind of behavior is the kind of behavior that she is fighting in the movie but it it complicates that so much uh and i think shows that the a lot of the people who have had big problems with the movie at the time, like, you know, weren't thinking very deeply. Didn't, like, yeah, <laughs> didn't fucking pay attention to the yeah, whole movie. Maybe had never even seen it, you know? Like, right. like read, a, read somebody else's conservative headline about it and wrote their own. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I mean, uh, I got all the comment cards from the test screenings and, and men like the movie as much as women, basically, in the test screenings. Uh, so it didn't divide on gender lines. Well, I mean, it's a big out West action movie. I mean, what's not to yeah. like, you know, from a man's point of view, like, yeah, there's trucks explode and there's a helicopter that goes through a big cloud of smoke and, you know, the cool cars <laughs> but, and, you know, like, it's great. But also, and also men or women, it doesn't matter. They're incredibly entertaining, engaging characters with a lot of chemistry. You know, it's not... I, I, men are going to like that too. I, I, I think the assumption that men are only, maybe they'd only go see something marketed with explosions and stuff. But once the movie starts, it's so funny and entertaining. And it's the exact kind of movie everybody would go see in the nineties, even without the, the, the explosions. Becky, yeah. back, back, back to the hot seat for you. Yeah. Ball you have court. A, yeah this you is have a asking a lot because it's really random on any given day. I'd pick something else, but I'll just randomly pick this one. 
um, the scene late in the movie when Thelma and Louise are outside, I don't know, if, I can't remember, I think it's after she calls her husband or something. Um, they're outside, the light is falling and uh, Thelma says to Louise, um, something's crossed over in me and I can't go back. Yeah. Yeah. And the lighting, uh, Ridley Scott gives her that backlighting where her hair is just lit up like a crown and the, the reaction shot of Susan Sarandon uh, and she goes, I know, honey, I know. And um, I think a lot of what we've all said here is there's a lot of razzle dazzle in the movie, but these intimate moments between mm -hmm. characters that are deeply felt are maybe our favorite scenes because there's a core of that that's holding the movie together. And I found that very moving. And Tom Noble, the editor of the film said that he cried when he edited that scene. Yeah, I would I would completely agree about all these all these intimate scenes. They're they're so well constructed and 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 performed. I think one scene that goes along with the one that you just mentioned is the scene where they stop the car in the middle of the night and Susan Sarandon just goes and looks at the stars. And then Thelma walks up behind her and says, "What are you doing?" She says, "Nothing." And then they go back in the car. It's an incredibly powerful moment of silence between the two of them. And apparently, like, I, I wasn't sure if this is what you were referencing at the beginning of the book, but Callie Curry talks about being on the set or about to be on the set of a music video in, in somewhere like Monument Valley and looking up at the sky and the stars and thinking about how that, that's such a, she would love to see that moment of realization at nature. And I, I immediately thought of that scene in the movie. I don't know if that's where that came from because then it seems like Susan Sarandon, it was Susan Sarandon's idea to do that scene, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that moment is just somehow in the DNA of the film because yeah. Calipari was inspired by a moment like that in her own life. But that scene is not in the script. It was improvised um, on the fly. It was Susan's idea to just give a breather at that moment when the tension is really building up. But it's interesting that what bubbled up was something that was important in Callie's subconscious when she was writing the film. So they were all on the same wavelength at that point, I think. Um, the second question is, um, you know, the podcast is called 30 Years Later and we started it in 2020, which means that we're basically going to be doing, if we do this podcast for 10 years, we're going to be doing the 90s. Lucky only. you. <laughs> the 90s. I know. And, um, so the question is, um, you know, what is the most 90s thing about this movie, in your opinion? Wow. See, I think it stands out because it's not very 90s. I mean, I agree. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways it is not very 90s at all. Um, I mean, my I answer of... is like one of the things that I think is kind of 90s, although it's like a lot of these movies, late 80s, early 90s, is the way that it's like wall the wall blues rock in the movie. Like there's so much blues rock. And there is a scene where the with a band performing in the film, which is a real hallmark of this time in cinema. Like for some reason, directors thought you wanted to watch a band perform, which you never, ever see anymore. But like a movie like Roadhouse, it's like, there's five performance scenes in Roadhouse. Like for what reason, you know? <laughs> Roadhouse was Roadhouse was the number one recommended movie on Amazon after Thelma and Louise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <What>? right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say, I will say for me, and maybe this is kind of a cop out, but 
the most 90s thing about the movie for me is Ridley Scott's style. I don't really yeah. see see him. He has this style that much anymore, maybe because he doesn't shoot on film. But that smoke, the smoky background, the wet streets, the the backlighting, um, it was very much the Tony Scott, uh, Ridley Scott sheen of of the 90s that I, I don't think you see in movies past uh, past the 90s. Hmm. So does does my answer that it doesn't feel nineties to me count or do I that counts that counts you don't have to yeah think we can that counts we'll, they are wearing those high waisted jeans but of course now they're <laughs> back true. they are I mean I was thinking during the movie like I mean I'm the shallow one I'm always thinking about people's clothes when we talk about these movies like Thelma and Louise's outfits and especially the way that their story is told through their costumes throughout the course of the movie is really interesting and and by the end when they're their total badass most self realized versions of themselves. A plus outfits would wear today. Like you would definitely see them like in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, like a hundred percent. Like, yeah. yeah, great. Great nineties looks. I mean, I would also maybe say Harvey Keitel is a cop. He played a cop many, many times over throughout the nineties. Um, that's kind of a cop out. I don't know. I, that's, I'm just kind of come up with other stuff now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Stop the, pitching. The, you got it. The, the last question that we ask is it's been 30 years since this movie came out. What do you think um, we've grown out of uh, since this uh, movie was released? You know, culturally, what do you think, you know, wouldn't be done anymore? Or, um, you know, oftentimes it's something that was offensive that the movie did because it was 1990 or 1991. Right. But in but this, this case, it's like positive, right? I mean, yeah. Okay, so what's the question again? What have we grown out of? It's in the movie. Yeah, you're you yeah. are not the only one who yeah, responds that way immediately after hearing well, that question. Yeah, it's it's usually the response. Yeah, I, I get. I mean, it's kind of like my other one. The movie still feels current because women are still facing all this same stuff now. Mm -hmm. uh, so have we grown out of any of it? I don't know. I'll just I'll talk about this the truck driver scene. A lot of people didn't like the truck driver scene because he was over the top. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we've grown out of that in the way that, uh, Callie Curry wasn't happy with the way the truck driver was portrayed. He was this total troglodyte, you know, just mm -hmm. so uh, stupid seeming as it, he's the guy for people who don't know the movie. I'm sure no one's listening to this by now. But, <laughs> but um, it, you know, he's uh, making cat calls and rude remarks to the women along the road. Um, Ridley Scott was very surprised that women were uh, subjected to this sort of behavior in public. And so he urged this actor to be totally over the top in this troglodyte performance. Uh, Callie Curry was not happy with that because she says pretty regular guys do this kind of thing. You don't have to be a complete mm -hmm. moron to uh, act this way. Um, so I think maybe by now we all recognize that people who have a nice facade can be uh, very unpleasant to women. So maybe we've moved past that. Just right. interesting yeah. aside, the guy who plays the truck driver, Ridley Scott said he'd never get a date again. But uh, right at the end of the shoot, he flew off to a Shakespeare festival to play Antony and Antony and Cleopatra. So he's actually <laughs> a classically trained, excellent actor oh who put on this crazy performance. <laughs> Well, that just tells you, I guess, you know, he was doing what the director wanted, you know, in service of the film, you know, as much as he seemed right. like a complete idiot. Right. <laughs> um, 
I'm going to say, and I, you know, I could be, be wrong here and this might, and, and I'm going to try to do it very shortly, but there is this sense uh, that comes out online these days that like movies are more political than they used to be, which I, I, I genuinely disagree with. Um, I think movies were often extremely political. They were often allegorically political rather than directly political, but they were never marketed to be explicitly political. That was always something that was left to the movie's device and not the marketing department's device. And I think if a movie like Thelma Thelma and Louise came out now, it would be trying much harder to immediately be part of the online conversation or the um, discourse as they call it versus sort of just existing as a big entertainment entertaining popcorn movie it would see its first priority as being part of the discourse rather than being right. simply an entertaining lark and as, it was as, and as it would be like it would be constructed in such a way that it would like fit properly into the discourse, you know, like these are things people are talking about and we're addressing them in this way. And, you know, that, like you're saying, that would be one of the priorities of of the film. Whereas this film, it it was just kind of born naturally of someone's real experiences in the world. And it really resonated with people because of that, not because it was trying to, you know, be part of the discourse, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah, So I don't agree. Sorry, go ahead, Becky. This was like a gigantic culture war style phenomenon at that time when those things were still rare and it would be a more calculated culture war uh, yes. phenomenon now. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Not that, they would I'm be not trying gonna, to start a culture war. Right. I'm not going to bring up Promising Young Woman again, but a movie like The Hunt, for example, like that's very intentionally like, here's a conversation people are having and here's a spin we can do on it. And, you know, people will be outraged by it. And, you know, it's very calculating. Right. Mm-hmm. So to take it back, like, I don't agree when people say that movies are more political now than they were previously. I, I I think that oftentimes people are saying that because they just don't really understand the way movies were political in the when they when they were children, but they are uh, they are more explicitly marketed as political, which I think is people are having a reactionary a turn right? to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I would say, uh, you know, and, and the, this is something we've been talking about, and I feel like I've said on other episodes, but it, it's a very interesting example because as as we've been saying, one of one of the knocks on the movie is that it was was too violent and and too sensational and like almost like too lowbrow in a way with a certain like thread of argument against this movie. And I think <clears throat> what's interesting is we, the movies you were talking about that came out this same week. I mean, there were just so many movies that were like, for adults about uh, adult situations, real things you go through in life. I mean, that John Candy movie you're talking about, only like the Hudson Lonely. Hawk. Well, only like the Hudson Lonely. Hawk. O- only the Lonely is the one I was going to say. I mean, Hudson Hawk and Backdraft. No, yes, okay, no, those are dumbass movies that existed a cartoon universe. But like, only the Lonely, like that's another movie that's like it's a drama for for big for big boys. And like, I I think what we've grown out of, unfortunately, is a movie that has these kinds of impulses, like a movie I really liked that Ricky didn't like, not to call it, put you on blast or whatever, was Nobody, the new Bob Odenkirk movie. um, Terrible movie. Which I thought was really interesting and I enjoyed and I thought it was fun to watch. You're wrong. But it's like, 
That's it's too bad. like uh, it, what I'm wait. I'm gonna say something bad about it. So like this, so you're gonna like this part. It is. It becomes just a big stupid cartoon at a certain point, and it's just really dumb. And there's like you know an old man shooting a shotgun and blah blah. It's so stupid. Uh, at it, and even the stuff that's like the serious adult stuff is also done in this like very very broad shorthand you know almost like when somebody from film school sets a movie in world war ii and you're like you don't know shit about this why are you making a movie set in world war ii but like whereas this film whereas so that's a movie where it is an action entertaining movie but it's also trying to have some connection to the real life of, of adults but it, it becomes this complete absurdity. Whereas I feel like this is in the same category as that movie in a certain way, but it's just so much more intelligent and grounded and, uh, and, and you get so much more out of it because you're watching people living something like a recognizable life in a world that you're somewhat familiar with, you know? And I just don't think that they do that anymore for, for movies like this. Well, you have to give a lot of credit to the performances of the two leads. Uh, they kept it so grounded and real because you could see a cartoon version of this movie, but they didn't let that happen. And also, of course, the script written by a very real person about her real concerns also kept it from becoming cartoon. So it mm -hmm. just had a lot going for it that other movies can't seem to find that groove. And that said, there were... A host of people, film film writers, who thought that the movie was too cartoonish, that the movie was just like a big Hollywood lark, and that people ascribing any kind of uh, feminism to it or or artistry to it were were really missing the were, were really missing the mark. Which I have to say to that, like you guys had no idea how good you had it in the nineties. Yeah, exactly right. Take on if, Thelma and Louise is not a piece of cinematic art. <laughs> if this counts to you as a big stupid movie, like just wait, you know, just <laughs> wait, yeah. guys. Okay, take your time machine to now and watch what we have to put up with on a, <laughs> on a weekly basis when it comes to movies. Um, Becky, thank you so much for, for joining us and talking to us about Thelma and Louise and, and writing this wonderful book. As I said, I, I read the entire thing last night. I couldn't put it down. I loved it. It is a suspense story because even though you know that movie got made, you just can't believe it's actually happening because it, it was so out of the ordinary. So even as I'm, I was writing it, I kept thinking, oh God, will they pull this off? Because uh, <laughs> we're all glad they did. <laughs> Um, the book is called Off the Cliff, How the Making of Thelma and Louise Drove Hollywood to the Edge. And uh, of course, the movie came out 30 years ago, Thelma and Louise. It's an absolute banger of a classic. Uh, if you have not seen it and are list still listening to this podcast, yeah. you must be totally insane and not actually know what you're <laughs> listening to. But that's it. Go see the movie if that's the case. And after you've seen the movie, pick up a copy of uh, Becky's book. It's a, uh, as she said, it's a really suspenseful depiction of uh, how the movie was able to get made. Becky, thank you so much for being here. Chris, good to see you. Yeah, Bye, folks. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye.